Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Is the saying true, all dogs go to heaven? What about cats, birds, gerbils, snakes? Is there anything that is left out in God's grace? Join us for the message, Will I See My Pet in Heaven? Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Is the saying true that all dogs go to heaven? Well, what about cats and birds and gerbils or snakes? Is there anything, though, that's left out of God's grace? Well, join us a little bit later for our message today, Will I See My Pet in Heaven? Our first scripture comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 26c, 31b, and chapter 2, verses 18 to 20c. Listen now for the word of God. And God said, let the water spring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. <clears throat> then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, and to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. Our second reading comes from Romans 8, verses 19 through 25. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. And it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the kingdom of God, of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. But not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not, is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, my dog, Caleb, died. Now, she was rather pathetic looking at the end, but most of her life, she had been a beautiful dog. She was a border collie mix, and she had um, the less common but very distinctive merle coat pattern 
Usually you see that on Australian shepherds, but you see it on border collies some too. But true to her border collie heritage as a puppy, she tried to herd everyone. She could actually literally herd cats. It was amazing. And just like most border collies, she was very intelligent. Dog experts tell us that border collies are the most intelligent breed of dog in existence. And this was proven to me when I enrolled Caleb in the first level of dog obedience training called Puppy Kindergarten. And she was graduated valedictorian of her class. <laughs> we, got, we, we got a certificate in everything. I was very, very proud. But 14 years later, however, it was just evident that every step caused her pain. And so I made that very difficult decision that pet parents often have to make to put her down. And I buried her in the backyard next to her best friend, Bo, which had been my dog that had died a few years earlier. And so in a very few short years, I had just lost four animals. And for the first time since I had lived in the college dorm, there were no animals in the house. Now, in a way, it was nice not to have to continually clean off pet fur off of my clothes and off the furniture. I could actually leave open the pantry or a closet door wide open and not worry that a cat's going to go in there and get shut up in there. And I can tell you, I certainly did not miss the litter box. But it was also kind of lonely and just a little bit quiet. And I thought about getting some more pets, but the, the time didn't seem quite right. Well, then several months later, a feral mother cat had kittens in my sister's backyard, a litter of just two little male kittens. And my, my sister started handling them when they were only three days old, so they'd get used to, to humans, to human touch. And she started hitting around that those kittens need to come to live at my house. And I eventually fell for her shameless manipulations, and those two little male kittens came to live at my house, and seeing as how they were brothers... I named them Frazier and Niles. <laughs> now, for cats who came from a feral cat colony, they adjusted quite nicely to life with a human. They seemed to enjoy having a human around who regularly fed them and petted them and groomed them, played with them, enabled their catnip addiction. Unfortunately, after complications from surgery, I had to put little Niles down when he was only eight months old. And I was pretty devastated at the time, and so was Frazier, by the way. But eventually, we added Daphne and Simba, and Daphne and Simba were litter mates to each other, who were born uh, the very next litter from that same feral mother cat that had birthed Frazier and Niles, so they're all siblings. And then later, I adopted Thomas, who was also from that same feral colony. And I can tell you, over the years, my various pets have been nothing but a source of just joy and companionship. Now, about a year and a half ago, I preached a sermon series uh, entitled Catholic Saints for Pious Protestants. And in that series, we examined the life of St. Francis. So I thought it'd be, this would be a perfect time to kind of review St. Francis' life, because I really think he, he, he led a fascinating life. And if you get a chance here on the altar, as a, in addition to several, I know you can't see this at home, but in the altar we have uh, several stuffed animals that, that Kathy brought us. And she and I both brought some statues of St. Francis that are there on the altar. And by the way, you should also come later and see my new stole that's little dogs and cats. If, you, if you're at the animal blessing yesterday, you got to see it then. 
But anyway, St. Francis is one of the best-loved saints in all the saintly pantheon. And even the most hardcore Protestants have heard of St. Francis. They know that he's the patron saint of animals. Well, Francis was born to a wealthy cloth merchant in the late 12th century. And in such, Francis could have lived his life in luxury, but he kept giving away his father's profits to all the local beggars, and he nursed the lepers who lived there in the Italian town of Assisi. So in desperation, Francis' father took him to court before the bishop. And there Francis renounced his family and his fortune. He then took off all the clothes off his back, handed them back to his astonished father, and walked out of court in nothing but his underwear. Well, now in his mid-twenties, Francis became a beggar. Devoting himself to a life of poverty, he started to acquire followers, and he eventually petitioned Pope Innocent III to found a new order of monks. And this fellowship eventually became known as the Order of the Friars Minor, but we better know them today as the Franciscans. And Francis continued to attract followers and eventually sent missionaries throughout Europe. Well, years later, Francis was in the middle of a 40-day fast when he had a vision of Christ. And during the vision, he received the stigmata. That is, he began to manifest the signs of the crucifixion wounds of Christ on his hands and on his feet. Ironically, he died a few weeks later from complications both from the stigmata and from a debilitating eye disease. And so he died in the year 1226 at the age of 45. And it was said that he was singing a psalm as he passed. And two years later, Pope Gregory IX announced him as, pronounced him a saint and then laid the foundation stone for the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi, Italy. Now, Francis' affinity for animals was, was legend. He was the first ever to set up a live nativity scene utilizing real animals, and the straw-filled manger served as the altar during the Christmas Mass. And for the most part, Francis was a vegetarian, but he did eat chicken feet, since he, 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 the logic was that those parts of the chicken were going to go to waste anyway. Whenever he came across a fish or an animal that was caught in a net or a trap, he would set them free, then he would admonish them, don't let yourself get caught again. In one famous story, Francis was traveling with some companions when he spotted a large group of birds from different species all there in the same tree. And leaving his friends, Francis approached the flock and began to preach the gospel. And the birds listened very patiently. And when he had finished, they began to sing and to spread their wings. And from that day forward, Francis endeavored to encourage all creatures to love and praise their creator and regularly preach to all kinds of animals and birds and even reptiles. Francis realized this deep, abiding spirituality of all creation, but especially that of animals. Indeed, animals can be a portal to a whole other realm, I think, of spiritual depth. Animals put us in touch with the nonverbal, intuitive parts of our personality and take us to a place that's beyond words and beyond doctrines or any kind of theological formulations. In other words, animals are great spiritual teachers. So good, in fact, that animals are often used in therapy situations because of their great ability to break down 
the emotional and the physical barriers that, that we routinely erect around ourselves. When my mother was in a nursing home, they actually encouraged loved ones to bring up the family pet for visitation. Animals are just able to read and adjust to seemingly every human need and emotion. One of the most touching things I've ever witnessed was during my dad's final days. We were able to keep him at home, and his little cat, for those last several days, would not leave his side. She would sleep at his feet for like 12 hours at a time. Then she would get up for, at most, 15 minutes. She'd go eat, drink, use the litter box, and then she'd jump right back on his bed for the next 12-hour shift. And she did this for days until he died. And I also know about the ability of animals to read human emotion from my own experience. For example, if I'm home and if I'm angry, if I have my voice raised, usually I'm yelling at a computer, or maybe the cowboys are losing, but then the pets scatter. But if I'm in distress, either physically or emotionally, they try to comfort me. And I can't tell you how many times over the years that I've been upset, crying even, and I looked up and I found that one of my cats had jumped up right there on the sofa beside me, or my dog had come over and put her head right there on my knee. And in either case, while I was, whether I was angry or upset, in either case, I was loud and agitated. But somehow they knew the difference between noise that was caused by anger and noise that was caused by tears. As one anonymous author wrote, cats' whiskers are so sensitive they can find their way through the narrowest crack in a broken heart. Animals embody healing. You could say they're a kind of an incarnation of God's touch. They can get through to us, even when we've shut out other people, even when we've shut out God. Many people say they cherish their pets because they offer unconditional love without judgment. But I've always maintained that I'm, I don't really think animals are completely non-judgmental. And if you have cats, you know this is true. But the thing is, is that pets don't judge you by human standards. Your dog or cat does not care if you are rich or poor, if you live a mansion or a shack. Your dog or cat doesn't care if you have a PhD or you never made it through high school. Your dog or cat doesn't care what color you are or where your ancestors came from. Your dog or cat doesn't care if you're young or old or beautiful or plain or male or female or gay or straight. Your dog or cat doesn't care if you're the CEO of a multinational corporation or the maid who cleans his office. This is what your pet cares about, and this is how they judge you. Are you loving? Are you kind? Do you know how to share? Are you patient, affectionate, sensitive? Can you sometimes just chuck your to-do list and get down on the floor and play? Or go outside and throw a ball or take a nap in the afternoon sun? Can you at least for a moment give up all your human strivings and all those things that we think are important and just bask in the love and warmth of your creator? See, I think this is how animals judge us. I think it says a lot about how God judges us. 
And one other thing I think God judges us on is how we care for the environment in which we share with the animals. I mean, just think about the story of Noah and the great flood. Genesis says he built an ark. He gathered together two of every kind of animal on earth. And I think this story illustrates in a, in a very real metaphorical sense that when it comes to the condition of the planet Earth, humans and animals are in the same boat. If we treat creation with love and care, creation will return the favor. It's good to remember that not only is St. Francis the patron saint of animals, St. Francis is also the patron saint of the environment. And I love this one quote from Mahatma Gandhi. He said, the moral progress of a nation and its greatness should be judged by the way it treats its animals. And I think that extends to the way a nation treats the environment in which both we and the animals must live. My life with animals has raised over the years many issues with theological implications. For example, years ago I was preaching at Perkins Chapel there at SMU on a Sunday morning. And the service attracted quite a few SMU students, as you would imagine, but it also drew a large following there from the nearby neighbors, many of whom considered Perkins Chapel to be their home church. And these neighbors included a young blind couple who lived very nearby. And they came every Sunday with their assistant's dog, and they sat right near the front of the church. And as they came forward to receive communion elements, I noticed that the chaplain leaned over and gave that dog a big chunk of communion bread. And this surprised me, and I found it kind of touching. But I did have to wonder if a dog receiving communion was theologically correct. But after I thought it through, I decided, you know, it's really no different than when we leave leftover communion bread out in nature for there for the birds and the insects and the animals. When we have leftover bread or juice, we don't just throw the bread away or just pour the cup down the sink. Either someone finishes eating it or drinking it or they're returned to the earth. Often I've, I've actually found when I'm doing it that, that I pour the cup deliberately at the base of a tree or in a flower bed. And I always make sure and spread that bread around for all the birds and the small animals. So if that's acceptable, if it's acceptable to leave the elements out in nature to be consumed by God's other creatures, then I guess it's okay for a dog to come up for communion and receive a big old chunk of communion bread. I think the underlying theology is this idea that God's love and redemptive activity is not limited to the human race. God declared all things in creation to be very good. This very well-known verse, we all know it, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And as I've shared with you in the past, the Greek word for world here is the word cosmos. And the word cosmos means the same thing in English as it does in Greek. So in other words, God loved not just the human race. God so loved not just planet Earth. God loved everything, the entire cosmos, the whole creation, and everybody and everything in it. And this includes our animal friends. In Colossians, Christ is referred to the firstborn of all creation. And as Kathy read from 
Romans chapter 8, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, for the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. A few years ago, a book came out entitled, Will I See My Dog in Heaven? It was written, not surprisingly, by a Franciscan friar. And the friar argued that since God longs to save all creation, then animals must somehow be included in God's plan of salvation. And as one theologian pondered, perhaps God has a covenant with the animals with which humans are not aware. In the Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created the animals and declared it was very good. And in the very next verse, God says, let us create humankind in our own image according to our likeness. And the use of the pronouns us and our, our has been debated for centuries. Who is God talking to when God says, let us? Is it the angels? Is it the heavenly host there in the heavenly court? Is this some sort of early reference to the Trinity? One, some theologians even think that God is speaking in the royal we like a British monarch. But in the 14th century, a Jewish rabbi came up with a different answer. He believed that God was talking to the animals. When God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, God had just created the animals. There's no one else there for God to talk to. Now, I think it fits this overall teaching of the creation texts. Like all the other animals, the human was formed from the dust of the ground, yet the human was also enlivened with the breath of God. So a human being is what you get when you combine the fleshly anim a, a fleshly animal body with a divine spirit. So we were created in the image of God, but also in the image of the animals. And I think what the Bible teaches us in metaphor, science shows us in evolution. The animals are our kinfolk. We share a common source. We are family. We share DNA with other animals. With chimpanzees, we share 98.8% of the same DNA. With cats, 90%. With dogs, 84%. With slugs, 70% which really surprised me. It explains a lot, yes. Some would say that emphasizing our shared heritage with animals somehow denigrates humanity. But we know we're children of God. We're created in the image of God. Nothing's going to change that. I think what this does is not denigrate human beings. It just elevates animals and all of creation to their rightful place as the handiwork of God. And since we humans are the only creatures who possess the imprint of the image of God, then we have a special responsibility to our animal brothers and sisters. And so what is the answer to that question? Will I see my pet in heaven? Well, one thing we have to remember is that Scripture is silent on the question of who else we will see after we leave this world. Most of us like to think, in fact, we deeply want to think that we will encounter our human loved ones who have already died. But actually, the Bible never actually addresses this desire. 
But then again, there are other reasons that we can believe that we will one day be reunited with our loved ones. First of all, while scripture never addresses whether we will see our loved ones again, it doesn't preclude it either. And scripture does affirm that God is love, and love is the most powerful force in the universe. So if God is love, and love is the most powerful force in the universe, it is logical to conclude that love does not die just because our bodies have expired. If we all go to be with God, the God of love, when we die, then it stands to reason that we all are going to be there together, all of us together with God forever. And along the same lines, the love we share with our animal companions also lives on. For if God is love, then love never dies. And again, looking to science, we know that human brains have a significantly higher capacity for logic and reasoning. We are smarter than other animals, though not as smart as we like to think we are. And I think most of us can tell stories of when our pets somehow outsmarted us. But while the parts of the brain that govern intelligence are way more developed in humans, the parts of the brain that govern our emotions, including our capacity to love, are strikingly similar between humans and the higher animals. Higher animals such as primates and dolphins and elephants and cats and dogs. So if you've ever had the privilege of being loved by a dog or cat, this, is not, this may not really surprise you. Any being then that has the capacity to love then is able to tap into that most powerful force in the universe and therefore into the heart of God. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, cared deeply for animals so deeply that he himself was a vegetarian. And even John Wesley leaned toward the idea that animals had souls. And I think he may be right. So will I see my pet in heaven? I don't know for sure, but I think there's a very good chance. And I know when I die, I'm going to be on the lookout for that rainbow bridge so we can all cross over together. Amen. I wanted to share a litany of the animals with you. The animals of God's creation inhabit the sea, the earth, and the sea. We share in the fortunes of human existence and have a part in human life. Animals were saved from the flood on the ark and afterwards included in God's rainbow covenant with Noah. The paschal lamb recalls the Passover sacrifice and the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. A giant fish saved the prophet Noah, and animals were included in the repentance of Nineveh. In the end, animals will share in Christ's redemption of all God's creatures. Creator God, we thank you for the gift of animals, for the beauty of wild animals, the gifts of farm animals, and the priceless love we receive from our pets. Let each of us now in silence thank God for those animals, both the living and those who have gone before, who have graced our individual lives with their love and loyalty. And so now lift up those names in silence.
for the gifts of our animal companions. We give you thanks, O Lord. Yet, we confess our failure to always be faithful caretakers of the animals. We've destroyed and dirtied their environment. We have neglected those that are homeless. We have failed to always be good guardians of our own animal companions. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and our animals. Enable us to be the caretakers of the earth that you asked us to be. Help us to love the earth and all your creatures as you have loved us. In the name of Jesus Christ, who came to redeem all creation. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, our message will be brought to us by guest preacher, Reverend Mike House. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.